listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Season 1 of Score to Death, the podcast, is coming to a close. And for its two-part season finale, we have a very special treat. Perhaps best known by horror fans as the man that gave a musical identity to the 1988 cult classic Killer Clowns from Outer Space, composer John Massari has had a busy and fascinating career and he has graciously accepted the invitation to sit down for a detailed interview. In part two, we will dive deeper into some of his more popular work, but today, John puts on his elbow-patched tweed jacket and assumes the role of professor for a masterclass on film scoring, chock full of personal insights into the craft, as well as trade secrets and lessons learned from his esteemed mentors, the great Jerry Fielding and David Rose. He also relays a story about how advice from his mother led to a job working with one of the 20th century's greatest literary minds. So grab a notebook and something to write with, because we have a lot to get to, and you're not going to want to miss anything. And one last note before we get started. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties during the interview, so please excuse any imperfections and inconsistencies in the sound quality. Now, on with the show. Unlike most of the people I've interviewed... But similar to a mutual friend of ours, Harry Manfredini, you kind of fell in love with film music at a very young age. Yes. What was it that turned you on? I mean, you were a real little kid, right? Yeah, I was uh, six going on seven. And uh, it was summer. And uh, there was a triple feature that all the kids I grew up with on my block wanted to go to. And we all did the same things together. We rode bikes together. We built model airplanes and burned them in a field together. And, you know, we, we run the same little league baseball team. And one of them says, Hey, there's a really cool, there's a really, uh, excuse me. We didn't say cool. We said boss. There's a real boss triple feature. Let's go see it. And I said, cool. And it was like, I don't know, like 50 cents or something like that. And we walked down to the local theater. This is in uh, garden Grove, California. The triple feature was uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, The Time Machine, and Mysterious Island. And uh, basically, in those days, um, well, as is today, matinee is a place for kids just to completely goof off and completely just make all the mayhem they want, eat, eat whatever junk food they wanted, and just, you know, just be kids for three hours. I was sitting there like a concrete statue looking at the screen and listening to everything taking everything in in awe the whole experience to me was just was basically indescribable and i was 
I felt that that was like the seminal moment where something about those films affected me. It was an experience that I wanted to continue to have an experience like that. And so I ran the next weekend, ran there, and they had like the Three Stooges and Ma and Pa Kettle, like these old uh, old B-movie reels. But there's no magic. Like, it was funny. But there was no magic. And that's what I experienced. It was a very uplifting, magical experience. I felt like I was there with the characters. And then I realized what affected me the most was the music. And my, at the time, my mom had gotten a piano, which I have to this day. Uh, she got a piano because she was going to start pay, taking piano lessons. And she just realized it wasn't for her. But the minute it came to the house, you couldn't tear me away from it. I didn't know what I was doing. But I think subconsciously, I was trying to recreate whatever it was from that movie sonically. And then I started, I would always listen to the, we had a hi-fi, an RCA hi-fi system that I was always messing with. We playing records and scanning every station, listening for music. And sometimes I'd go there at four o'clock in the morning because no one would bother me <laughs> or three o'clock in the morning, you know, and put the radio on very low and listen to it. And it would terrify my parents because all of a sudden they hear music playing and they go, where's that coming from? They, they see their son. You ever see those um, full uh, one-piece um, pajamas with the, <laughs> the, the thing? So you see like a seven-year-old sitting yeah. there tinker, tinkering with the hi-fi system, you know, going through every channel you can imagine. And then there were things like television series that just completely mesmerized me. There was a TV series that, unfortunately, here in the States, we only got one season of it. It was made in England, and it was a Supercar. I loved the theme song to that thing. I was constantly singing that theme song. I knew the lyrics backwards and forwards, and um, I'm not going to sing it for you now. <laughs> Supercar, There was also all the Warner Brothers cartoons. I just loved every single one of them. Not, not only because they were funny and everything, the music captivated me, the timing and everything. And, you know, as an adult, because all those were recorded at the Eastman Scoring Stage. Well, it wasn't called the Eastman Scoring Stage at the time. It was just probably called, uh, you know, music part. Of, it's the music studio, part of the music department. And that room has a particular sound. When you hit, when you hit any, play any instrument, hit anything, there's a very particular sound. And I did something there. I was, was listening back, playback to the tracks dry at my place. And I could just hear the, there's a reverberation characteristic in those Warner Brothers cartoons that's still at that studio to this day. Yeah. It's a wonderful uh, experience. But anyway, so th those were things. And then there was Lost in Space. I thought that series was made for me. And it was, I forgot how many seasons it was on, two or three seasons. But when it came off, I was in a depression. And, <laughs> and it wasn't until it came on in reruns at some point that I felt, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. I just love that series and and you can imagine what i loved about that series was the not only theme music but the music for every single episode
the full collection and I sat down one day, I listened to the entire thing and I, I, I was like nine years old again. You know, <laughs> it was it was just as magical because they were the actual master and come full circle. When I did my Indiegogo campaign, we raised a pretty good amount of money not to do a, a big full blown orchestra. But I thought to myself, you know, how how great would it be to do like a late 50s, early 60s style recording session, which usually had if you had an orchestra, you usually had a full brass section, full woodwind section, percussion, and some strings. And there's a certain sound that that has. And so that's how I approached the Killer Clowns reimagined soundtrack. As a matter of fact, the engineer, Larry Getz, who's an incredible engineer and a music producer and songwriter and guitarist, a wonderful guitar player. I, he's played on many of my sessions. He recorded the orchestra and I told him, I go, Larry, I'm looking. I told him exactly what I was looking for. He goes, oh, yeah, I know how to I know how to set that up. I know how to set up the room, where to put the instruments and what mics to use. And we got that sound. It was really wonderful. We recorded at a place called The Bridge which would be a typical, like a secondary studio that they would do TV at. You know, there's the studio that they record the big feature films, and there would be a slightly smaller studio they would do TV or voiceovers. And um, uh, Greg Curtis, who built that studio, has all the uh, acoustic treatments and everything that are just tuned perfectly. So it was a real wonderful experience. So yes, back to your question, yes, at a very, (laughs) very early age, and I, it's something that I wanted to do, but I didn't know what to call it. And for the longest, I think when I was 10 or 11, I would tell people, I want to be a music writer. They didn't know what that meant. I mean, do you want to print music with a printing machine? I mean, what is, no, I want to create it and have it be on TV. Because to this day, people don't realize the the role. Uh, you know, there's a cinematographer, there's sound editors, there's uh, picture editors, and there's composers. There's all these behind the scenes roles to bringing a, a, a film or a television or any media to life and they don't realize you know the common consumer of media doesn't realize that there's oh i see there's actually someone sits down and composes brand new music for this particular program yeah but i kind of knew that there was this job out there there was this role that happened in media well that time i said television and movies that I knew it existed. I just didn't know what to call it. And I didn't even know if people got paid for it. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was a job and people would look at me with a puzzling thing. And I, I got to quote, uh, uh, there's a psychologist, his name is uh, Gor- uh, Jordan Peterson. He said, you know, we sit down in a movie theater and we just accept the fact that there's music playing with a dramatic scene. You know, uh, it could be anything any of any subject matter. It could be, uh, you know, a narrative drama, you know, a comedy. And you hear music in the background and we just accept it because in real life, I mean, if we walk out the door, there's not going to be establishing shot music. There's not going to be music that gets you from your front door to your car. Or, you know, if you see your neighbor that you've been trying to avoid it, there's not going to be some kind of music there in real life. But in movies, he said, and in television show, media in general, we accept it without questioning because it's that one dimension that takes our character and story from a two-dimension phase to a third-dimension phase. 
And uh, I thought that was beautifully put. And that's basically what it is. And people just aren't aware of it until you take it away. Yeah. You know. So as you're, you know, like in your early teens, and like you said, you, you, you knew you wanted to do it, even though you didn't know really what it was called yet. As you start to age into a young adulthood, late teens and stuff, you know, I, I read that you played in bands and you played uh, in, you know, school orchestra and stuff. And so you were kind of pursuing music on that level. But like, what was the step when you were like, okay, I've always wanted to create music for movies. Now I'm, I'm an adult. Here I go. Like, what was that first step? Well, I went to the library. There were, there were books that like the uh, hardcover version of IMDb. And I don't know what it was called, but it was uh, published by the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. And it had, and I, I couldn't even tell you what the title of the book was, but it had every film that had been done up to whatever year, let's say, um, you know, it had every credit and every story synopsis from just about anything shot from like 1890 up until, you know, like what, when I was a kid, like in, in the 70s. Right. So I would look up films that I, I said, OK, I like Planet of the Apes. Let me look it up. And I go, oh, there's Jerry Goldsmith. Did this. OK, I got to look him up. Took that name down. Who did the music for Lost in Space? And it had television in there also so you look up john williams and then look at okay uh, uh mysterious island oh bernard Herman. so then i started looking up in like biographies of musicians and and composers and things like that and i just couldn't find their names they had people who did uh, records like i found quincy jones bio and his kind of his history but i had to then finally go at one point to the academy of motion pictures arts and sciences on a field trip right i went and said Here's what I used to say. It says, the music composed by people. <laughs> so it's like, I didn't realize they were called film composers. And so the librarian said, oh, you want to know film composers? Yeah, oh, like Henry Mancini? Yeah, Henry Mancini. I want to know. And then there's, and I had this little list. There's John Williams and, you know, and all the other composers I had at the time. Jerry Fielding was on there. David Rose was on there. These are two people that I ended up working for. And uh, because he did Bonanza and I like the music to Bonanza and uh, Jerry Fielding did Hogan's Heroes. And I thought Hogan's Heroes music was good. And I also saw his name on Star Trek. He did a few Star Trek episodes. Oh, Star Trek. One of the composers was Joe Mullendore, who did these have these things called summer replacement TV series. There's one called McKeever and the, the Colonel that only came on at the summer. So instead of doing reruns, there would be like these uh, substitute TV series and McKeever and the Colonel was like uh, these kids in a military school and it was a comedy. It was really funny. It was like uh, the Phil Silvers show, except for kids. So, and anyway, so Joe Mullendore, who also did a ton of television and some movies and Star Trek in particular, he was the new membership guy at the union, the musicians union. So when I joined the union, I was sitting across the, the table from a guy whose music I loved. Yeah, yeah. And I started to talk to him. So basically, I used to take trips to the library and learn about these musicians. And there's, uh, unfortunately, there wasn't a heck of a lot written about them. There's not a lot except their credits and maybe where they went to school. But there was, I, I couldn't find, it wasn't until much later where I found articles. Obviously, 
the liner notes of some of the records that I had, and that's vinyl, obviously, at the time. They had some information, some input, some insights from the composer. But basically, uh, soundtracks in those days were kind of like an advertisement for the movie. It was like an extra thing. If you like the movie, there's another thing that you can buy. You know, I remember buying um, John Williams' The Iger Sanction, and I had never seen the movie. But I listened to the soundtrack. Then I saw the movie, and it was such a huge learning experience to see what that music lined up to visually. And then you really get to appreciate the artistry of film music. So that's basically how I did my research back then. There were music workshops. I discovered little by little there were music workshops. And I, when I, when I uh, looked into studying uh, seriously and I wanted to go to UCLA, they had an actual film scoring class that was taught by David Raxon who was an Academy Award-winning composer who basically took you through every step of the way. Unfortunately, it was every step of the way in 1950s technology. There was like the latest up-to-the-date stuff, but it was a very good lesson because at that time, we were still using moviolas. We were still literally uh, punching into the film to create uh, visual cues before music comes in. We would have a, a hole punch to actually hold punch into the thing and i thought back then there's got to be a better way because <laughs> literally every everything that you did you had to sometimes do three times because you may not hit it on the right you know when you're editing things together and uh later i'm jumping ahead but later on when we would have to do an audio fade we would literally take this uh very volatile um, solvent called toluene and wipe away the iron oxide away from the plastic you know, over like two feet to come up with a, a very smooth fade. And why would we do this? It was to save time in the dubbing stage, which was at the time still very expensive as it is today. So you, you have a customized fade so that the mixer can just set their levels in one place and not have to sit there and do fade ins and fade outs. Because they had these giant cue sheets where they had to look at numbers and look at the screen. And if they had to do tons of that stuff, it took a lot of time. Now all that is drawn in on a digital audio workstation. It's like manna from heaven. It's like, uh, oh my God, why didn't this exist 20 years ago? I have, as a side note, I have no nostalgia for all the analog gear I used to use. I'm sorry to say they were up. It was a complete pain in the neck. Even on their best day, something that will go wrong. There's a bad cable. You get noise on every level when you have a you know outboard gear like equalizers and, and the board itself the tape the tape machine makes noise that somehow you know the hum from the tape machine can sometimes come on be picked up by the tape i don't miss it at all i love 100 percent recall and the plugins that i have uh, that i've used i i know guys that are very seasoned engineers. He says they're not 100%, but they're like 98% as good as having, you know, the real deal. So, yeah, I should warn you I'm a bit of a chatterbox. So please excuse me. <laughs> okay. So you look up all these people. Yes. And then you take this kind of workshop about how to score films. Yes. And this workshop was at UCLA. It was, it was, it was a seminar class. 
that you could get credit for, but it wasn't a course that satisfied your music career. It was like an extracurricular thing. So it's like when you want to major in, you could not take this class and still major in composition. So I did that. And there were also other like private commercial places. I forgot there was some, there was some kind of workshop that was in North Hollywood that a lot of, um, people that worked in the business would teach at. Like, for instance, Alf Clausen that did the, uh, the Simpsons, he used to teach there. And he had a jazz band that he used to rehearse like twice a week there. And you could bring a piece of music there and have them play it. And he would rehearse it and you can record it and he would critique it right there. He would tell you, okay, let me show you what would work better. Right there with the orchestra, right there in front. Well, I shouldn't say orchestra, it was a big band. And you would learn so much that way. And uh, at that place, I studied orchestration there and privately from a fellow by the name of Dr. Albert Harris. And he was the real deal. He looked like the classical British composer with a goatee and everything and just was such a talented man and had so much knowledge. And a lot of people studied from him, including James Newton Howard. As a matter of fact, after he was studying with Dr. Albert Harris, James Newton Howard did a ton of arrangements, string arrangements for uh, Barbara Streisand. I still think he's worked with her rather recently, if I'm not mistaken. Studying with him privately for three years, at one point, he said, you know what, let me, let me give you some phone numbers of some people that I think you should work with. And it was interesting because like, he was grooming people to work with professional people. So it's like, if they say, listen, if you have someone that's new, that knows what the hell they're doing, send them my way. I may need some help. So I, I got the phone numbers of Jerry Fielding and David Rose. And I worked with, for both of them for a certain amount of time, I think about two, two years a piece. And that was a big deal. UCLA was fun because there were like programs that I took advantage of Like you could uh, get funding from the student committee of the arts to put on some kind of program, you know, a musical program. And I used to put on a concert every year I was there. I think out of the four years I was there, three, I put on concerts and uh, people really liked them. They were entertaining. And I would give other uh, students a, a chance to, you know, to premiere their work. And uh, most the orchestras primarily half students half professionals and we were i have the recordings somewhere i don't know if i can bear listening to them (laughs) (laughs) but they were you know what they were pretty good as my memory serves well they the everyone did a really good job you know we uh, you know we're really happy about it so that was a big that was a big help studying with those people and doing programs at ucla but it was studying privately See, I had read an article, the memoirs of uh, Igor Stravinsky. I read his um, biography, and he was basically going to a legal trade school. He was going to become a legal clerk. Now, a legal clerk means like you would be working for a judge or something like that. And this is, of course, in Russia before the revolution and everything. And his father did not want him to study music. His father was a, um, a, an opera bassist, a singer. But anyway, Stravinsky was encouraged not to study music at conservatory. But he had such talent in music that through his father, he met Rimsky-Korsakov. And Rimsky-Korsakov told Stravinsky, you don't need to go to college. You don't need to go to a conservatory. You stay privately with me for a number of years, and you'll learn everything and more. The conservatories are going to like r- mess with your head. And I, I hate to say it, but there are sometimes some schools have agendas of what they want to teach. And, you know, let's face it, they need to turn a profit. And so 
they uh, appeal to a certain population of, uh, 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 you know, in every subject. And uh, with music in particular, I think, you know, I think you could study privately and maybe go to some workshops because even workshops, they're only going to teach you so much. You know, there's nothing like working with someone being taught with someone who's currently working in the business. So it was But I firmly believe that it was a combination of the two because I had certain opportunities when I went to UCLA that I wouldn't have had on my own. And uh, then uh, studying privately also helped a great deal. So you also learn a work ethic that's very, very, very unique. I mean, there's there's this business, any aspect of the media business is not for everybody because it takes a level of persistence and stamina that borders on inhuman sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and that's where they separate the, you know, the wheat from the chaff. There's some people, you know, they, they try something once and they fail and they're done. Some people try something 10 times, they fail and they're done. And the formula for success, even if you get knocked down a thousand times, if you get up 1,001 time and you're still standing, <laughs> yeah. you won. You're it. You, you've got it. You, you know, to, who's going to sit there and count like, oh, you've had all these failures. You know, you can't listen to that. You have to keep moving on. And there's some people that don't listen to the people that say, you know, don't you think it's about time you hang it up? You know, you have to decide your own, yourself if you want to hang something up or you want to keep going. So I found that out real quick. I found out working some of my very first professional jobs, uh, you know, especially with Jerry Fielding. I, you know, he called me once at three o'clock in the morning. He says, get over here now. I thought his house was on fire. (laughs) And and he lived not too far. He lived, I lived below the hills of Hollywood Hills. He lived above the hills of Hollywood Hills. I go into his room and he's pointing to something I did for him. And he goes, sit there and tell me what the hell that is. And he made me rewrite it in front of him. You know, okay, I'm going to go through the process. What about this? No, no. Where are, look, look, this thing has a timeout to here, not to there. Okay, now do, put this over here. And like, literally it took two and a half hours. And it was like, wow, that was a big lesson. He goes, and the only reason why I'm even considering talking to you and not just like ignoring you is because I know you know better. And I don't know where you learned how to do this. I mean, where did you pick up this bad habit and that bad habit? And I go, well, you know, I worked with so-and-so and that worked with their so-and-so writes crap. <laughs> And they're doing this, that, and the other thing. It works for them. It's not working for me, and it's not going to work for this particular picture that we're working on. So it's like, wow. And we're talking about yelling like a drill sergeant. And I go, okay, okay. And so I was able to keep up with them, and I went home. I couldn't sleep the whole day afterwards. I think it was up for 48 hours. My mind was tinkering so much. I go, well, I've got to... You know, I knew all these people that I've been working with are talented and their game is way above my game. I, I felt like I grew a bunch of muscles that day. So I had to like bring my game up. So, you know, I think what's interesting about your story mm-hmm. and it's not too unsimilar to some of the younger guys that are in the book, like Nathan Barr worked for uh, Hans Zimmer. Right. And Jeff Grace worked for Howard Shore. But I think, I i mean, I saw it with my generation, you know, when I was a teenager and I got into film school and I could only assume that it might even be worse now. But I feel like 
at some point, and and it's it's part of the ignorance of youth, especially when it comes to art. Mm-hmm. I can do it myself. I don't need to go through the channels. I don't need to start at the bottom. I can do all this stuff. But like you and some of these other composers and even Craig Safin, who was recently on the show, he considered Elmer Bernstein a mentor. Like this idea of mentorship uh-huh. and working under somebody seems to be like an invaluable amount of experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I had a, a wonderful experience with someone who's very, very talented. As a matter of fact, I consider they have skills better than I. However, it needs to be channeled properly. And I, I was having them work on a project, and they literally said, I, I think I got it back. I don't think I can finish this. I go, whoa, what? What do you mean? You're doing fine. What do you mean you can't finish? Well, there's just too much work. Yeah, I know. The only reason why it seems to you that it'll never get done is because it's not finished yet. When it's finished on this date, we have a target date, right? It'll be finished and we're almost there and you can do it, you know? I mean, and there were situations in the project. I go, you know what you have working for you? First of all, we're working with a really good director and the music is approved. We don't have to rewrite anything. Yeah. What we have to do is finish it. (laughs) Do you know how easy that is? (laughs) Can you imagine? I says, imagine this. I've been in situations where... Not only do we have a lot of stuff to do, it's got to be approved far for by by four or five different people, and all of a sudden you think everything's approved, and then all of a sudden these four things have to be changed, and it like it really screws up with your the timing on how to get when to get things done. We don't have that problem now, and so it's like you know because it's like it's too hard, right? It is too hard. This is the this is the major leagues. You know, the major leagues, it is hard. There's a definitive cutoff date that we have to be finished and we have to be recording in the studio. And if we have like, let's say a three-day recording session, yeah, there may be a few things that are unfinished that we could be finishing while we're recording, but we're going to make it. I We really will. And I wasn't being angry with him or anything. I was just being encouraging. I'm saying, you know, egg, egging him on. He says, you know, you can get this done. I'm I'm up here doing my part and getting my part done so that you can do your part and then there's someone else that's going to pick it up from there. We're all going to get this done. Trust me. And so luckily it happened <laughs> without a problem. And, and this guy, this kid is a really good orchestra. He really knows his classical repertory and everything. And it's, 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 it's a beautiful thing now that everything's done. <laughs> but getting there sometimes is tough, you know, because I've been in situations where people literally – will say i'm done i can't i can't go i'm stick a fork in me i'm done and no amount of encouragement will let them go because that's it they've reached their plateau they hit that they hit a wall that they can't pass and so then then i have to you know then we have to re restaff basically yeah i want to uh talk more about the the mentorship type thing like what exactly were you doing for jerry fielding and david rose and Oh, okay. With Jerry Fielding, it was primarily orchestration. And there were a few, for Jerry Fielding in particular, okay, we're talking about Jerry Fielding. It was primarily orchestration. However, every once in a while, he would let me do a little transition or something like that. A transition, something that's like 15 seconds long or something like that. He says, listen, you know what to do here. Here's the musical material that you need. Use this music material, fit it in to make this, sometimes you used to call it a bridge, this transition or bridge work. And it wasn't a lot. Now with David Rose, it was primarily, 
he would build a scene, like uh, sketch it out. Like you're going to start here. You're going to, at this part, you're going to do here, here. We need a, you need to like uh, do a pause. And he would like write it out like a, like a little piano piece. Right. And then I would go in, orchestrate and fine tune it. Maybe add little things like that. He says, don't be afraid to add something. Do not be afraid to add something because I can always take it out. It's if you don't do anything and it lies flat, that's a problem. And here's the funny thing, David Rose. One time I was at his house and he noted I had just changed my oil and my did my didn't my own oil change, right? And uh, he looked at my fingernails and he says, "Did you do you uh, what did you what did you, what did you, what were you doing?" And I said, "Oh, I changed the oil on my car. You know, how to use tools and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, I." I I do my own tune-ups and stuff and things on my car and everything. And he goes, you're kidding. So you know how to use tools, like a ratchet and uh, screwdrivers, the whole routine. Yeah. And he had a little warehouse where his hobby was miniature steam engines. Wow. And he said, uh, listen, this is what, you know, I do music, but this is where I really enjoy. Uh, this is what makes me enjoy life is rebuilding and refurbishing. And he had guys, you know, like machinists come in and, working on these little engines and he says would you mind tearing this thing apart today i'll, I'll still pay you the same as like, your orchestra <laughs> don't worry about that but can you tear it tear this gear gearbox apart there's a flange in there i want <laughs> so and then sometimes he would be in there with me and he would put on um he loved delius and he loved uh, sibelius and he loved brahms and so he put a, a record on a phonograph record, and we'd listen to music. And th he had a music collection for his warehouse because they were all yucky and oily and dirty. And they sounded horrible, but he would listen to them while we would pull something. He would build something, and I'd be pulling something apart because he needed – because a lot of these uh, miniature steam engines were restorations kind of thing. So he was doing parts of it, and then someone would come in that specializes in whatever the heck it is that you specialize in making miniature steam engines. And that was, he just, that was the big joy of his life is, is doing that. So I did orchestrations. I did, I filled out like his compositions, but it wasn't like for every single episode. It was, it would be like during the, the height of the season, if there were 22 episodes, maybe I'd work on eight. So which show was this? This oh, Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. For the music lover that listens to a, a podcast like this one or reads a book like my book, but isn't necessarily musical themselves. What is the job of the orchestrator? Oh, yeah, the, oh yes. Okay. So we have, we have a composer. A composer comes up with like a, a melodic theme, maybe an interesting harmonic sequence. And like myself, I can go from scratch coming up with like the themes to doing an arrangement to time it out right where it works where it flows with the scene and then i can also orchestrate it right so the composer comes up with a, a melodic theme and other motifs and and sequence uh, you know harmonic sequences and then he arranges them to work within a scene then you have to assign instruments to those notes right so an orchestrator will say, oh, you know what, this, uh, the notation here is woodwinds. Okay, well, you know what woodwinds it's going to be? It's going to be clarinets and oboes are going to play this little part here, and then the strings will play pizzicato down here, and all of this will be meticulously notated so that when the parts are copied, everyone knows what to play on the day there's no no guesswork whatsoever the dynamics are in there and the dynamics meaning that you know whether they play soft or quiet or play loud 
and the tempo is figured out. All that stuff is figured out because as we know, when we go into a recording studio, we're not there to write the cue. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not there to figure out what to do. We are there to perform the music, you know, and musicians love it when everything is put in front of them. And now they they go for a performance where, uh, for instance, me, I use like just a few words. I'll, I'll say, I, I need this to be this section here. I need it to be very solemn, you know, or I need the, this is this here. You know what? You can play everything short and rigid here and they'll just know what to do. Most of the people that play professionally have, they not only play in the studio, they perform live, uh, the, the classical repertory. So what basically what an orchestrator does is take the composition from the composer and then help expand it to fit the the size of the band or the orchestra of the that you're using. Correct, correct. Now there are some people that are great, you know, are talented with coming up with great themes and motifs and they can kind of like fit it in and they'll have to hire an arranger to like arrange it so it times out well and the tempos work and the the trans all the transitions make sense and then an orchestrator will assign uh, meticulously sign all the instrumentation to it so it's like finalized so all we have to do now is play it so that's basically kind of like a three-step situation and there are some people for instance john williams i know people that orchestrate for him they say his sketches are just absolutely meticulous as anything is in fact i think believe he conducts off of his handwritten sketches they say there's not a heck of a lot of guesswork but there is there are things that still remain to be completed in order to make it for every instrument of the orchestra now, a guy like uh, Jerry Fielding, for the people that might be listening that don't know, I mean, but he worked with Peckinpah and he did a lot of stuff with Clint Eastwood. Is there anything that your time working with him, anything like specific things that you learned that you carried on lessons that you might be able to share to other potential composers from him? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you basically you want secret trade secrets. <laughs> I, I think there are people that listen to this that would benefit from okay. uh, well from your okay. from your knowledge and from his knowledge. Okay. Well, what what he would do? He used to put on two cassette recorders to record his dialogue with himself and the video. Because we at this point, when I came to him at this stage of the game, we had VHS and three quarter video, and with an external device. You can fast wind and rewind and everything back and forth. He would watch a videotape and he would put the scanner so you would see it like at five times speed. You know, you'd be see everything in fast motion. And he watched the whole thing in fast motion, not listening to dialogue. Obviously, there's, there's like it's just squirbling. That's all you hear. But and he watches it backwards at five speed. So a movie that's like an hour and a half long takes probably, you know, 15 minutes. So he like does that a whole bunch of times, which I found interesting. And it's like you, you get the pace, you get the uh, sequential pace of the whole movie. Then he'll sit there and go by scene, just watch it, just watch the movie and get the story down. Even though he's read the script, even though he's seen it in a screening room, there are certain scenes that he loved that he couldn't wait to write something special for. And sometimes those scenes would be written, for, he would conceive music first. For those scenes but not write out the scene he would have a and i lay i still do it to this day i had a 22 line score paper with no measure numbers it's just open it's like an open field and he would sit there and write little themes and melodies and when he write something that he liked he wrote a square around it 
and he liked that, and maybe he made a notation that this would work for such and such a, uh, a thing. All of them, David Rose and Jerry Fielding, were not obsessed with timing, even though Jerry Fielding was more exacting with timing than David Rose. They didn't let the timing of the movie bother them. They just found music that worked with that scene, not worrying about like, oh, at five seconds, I need to be here and three seconds, I need to be there. They didn't really worry about that. They let the, the flow of the music just work with them. And, you know, on that note, I, I've seen behind the scenes of Burt Bacharach when he's scoring his films. He never used a click track, he, nothing. He would just make the music and feel a tempo and they played the scene three or four times when they were recording. And they just picked the best one that hit all the marks, which is like completely non-numeric. He just knew that he had a minute and a half in a particular scene. And he wanted a, the music to flow a certain way. And he just didn't let, and you know, as we know, Burt Bacharach is known for his odd meters and stuff, which is perfect for this kind of business. But he didn't, uh, he didn't let that. And so I don't let that bother me either. I don't think of a scene like if it's a seven minute scene, I don't think of it as like, oh my God, it's seven minutes. I think of it as like, okay, I have seven minutes to express all these different moods and things. So I, that's what I picked up from Jerry Fielding is that he would, he would zap through the film where he got the, he got the cadence of the whole movie down. So then he can like pick a scene that's going to be really worth, because they, the music director and director would spot the film, but at the same time, he would re-spot it. And he would say, you know what, we need another thing here, or we don't really need that other short thing, because that's not as significant as this piece coming up, even though they make him write the other piece and sometimes take it out afterwards. But sometimes if you have too little music, it can slow down a movie, and sometimes if you have too much music, it can slow down a movie. So uh, I also learned a very important lesson in that, you know, pick scenes because some directors want you to like lay music all over everything because they think everything's a problem. You know, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't look it doesn't look the way they had imagined. Not only does it look like it, it isn't act, the acting didn't work, the line didn't work. This thing's not funny enough or that thing's not scary enough. And they think that lobbing music everywhere is going to work. And, and what it does, it just cancels it out. So there's also that kind of battle you have to fight and say listen it'd be great to pause here and come in there you know let's leave a space of like four minutes before we come in that way hey we've woken the audience back up so that was one of the things also both david rose and, and jerry fielding did a similar thing is where they sat down without watching the film at all just remembering what they saw the experience of the film the story the the feeling they get and they would come up with themes and melodies and motifs and chord sequences and little ideas separately that just comes out of their musical heart, so to speak. And then when they go see the film, they go, oh, let me go to my little palette of music ideas. This would work perfect there. Oh, and that would work perfect here. And like, oh, my God, this thing that I wrote works nowhere. <laughs> There's no place this works. So I can't use that. I'll save this for another project, you know. And I don't know, you want me to start talking about compression and uh, equalization and uh, EQ curves now? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but I've heard you talk about uh, in other interviews that you, especially early on, to kind of 
practice and learn the trade, that you would sit and transcribe things and even watch videos of conductors and see how they work with orchestras and stuff. And I just was hoping you could go talk a little bit about that, like this kind of homework that you kind of assigned yourself. There, there are sometimes I would get like a, a piece of music that I really loved and I would listen to it, not look at the score at all. Not even, not even bother looking at the score, just listen to the music itself. Because that's what it all comes down to. No, you know, the, the person is listening to music or watching a movie. They're not going to be looking at a score. It's often in the recording studio, if I'm in the recording booth, I don't even look at the score. I'm listening to the music. Because sometimes looking at the score can distract you. So I'm just listening to the music. And then if there's a problem, I, I'll say, okay, there's a problem at this point. This needs to be fixed or what have you. So there's a piece of music that I really like, and I would get the score to it and then look at the score. And then I would transcribe it from the full score down to like a manageable, like a piano piece. So I can play all the harmonies and I see everything in miniature. And I would then play it, you know, play it with my own hands. I go, wow, I'm playing a portion of a Shostakov symphony on the piano. Now, do they already exist in piano reductions? Of course they do. <laughs> I own those also. But when you do it yourself, you take it down to its basic components. You gain a lot of knowledge. You Basically, you are walking in the footsteps of the composer that created it. And then you certain things pop out at you that didn't pop out if you just listened to it. And things take on a different meaning. And that was a big help. And then I love watching rehearsal, especially with YouTube. There's just like a, a wealth of footage. I mean, it seems like that is going to be where humanity will be preserved is on YouTube. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be watching all these inter, uh, behind the scenes and footage that people have just found of some rehearsal. My goodness, there was a, there was a, oh my goodness, I'm trying to remember his name, the composer that did the famous, um, uh, like in the 80s, he did uh, Robin Hood, and he passed away, unfortunately. The, uh, so some VHS tape surfaced of uh, someone put a camera in the control room and someone put a camera outside in the recording studio, way in the back, just like in the corner. And they recorded it. And you get to see the rehearsal process from scratch. And of course, you hear everything from the perspective of the timpani, the timpani player. <laughs> which sounds different than if you're up front, right? And those are wonderful. So you, I would recommend consuming as much of that as you can. You learn so much. Like Leonard Bernstein in rehearsal is incredible, especially for a piece of his own, as opposed to something from the repertory. I, I love watching Bernhard Heiting with the Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam rehearsing. Very very, very particular, very, very sweet how he communicates with the, the orchestra. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, Arturo Toscanini, where he'll go into tirades, screaming at people. And and I, there was one passage in a Puccini opera that he was he was screaming at the bass section because they're coming in too early. And for crying out loud, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear him coming early. It sounded fine to me. <laughs> but it just was, I mean, he'd be downright insulting. So it's a, a good example of what not to be. Because basically at that point, he's irreplaceable. I think he was demanding a level of perfection that even great musicians of the world were finding it tough to live up to. But 
uh, nonetheless, it was it's great to watch that and basically kind of like imitate their conduct, you know, know the piece of music they're conducting and conduct with him. And, you know, you know not Arturo Toscanini or any, any conductor, really. And there are POV uh, cameras that, like, you just see the conductor from the musician's perspective. And so you see a great conductor and the moves he makes and or she makes and the gestures and things like that. You can pick up a lot with it in expressing your own music instead of like sticking your head in the score bearing and just, you know, waving your arms around. You know, that's another thing I try to do. I try to try as best as I can to memorize the music so I don't have to look at it as much. But some music is really tricky. It has a lot of tempo changes and meter changes that you got to pay attention to. But lots of times I'll listen to my mock-ups over and over and over again. Like when I'm driving around, I'll, I'll put them on SoundCloud and, so, and I'll just listen to them. So when I go in front of the orchestra, there's a level of familiarity that makes me feel comfortable, which makes the orchestra feel comfortable. You know, Those are some of the little trade secrets that I have. I would love to talk about the Ray Bradbury Theater. Okay. And how that came about and what was it like creating a theme? And it's my understanding that you even, you know, you got input from Bradbury himself. The story of the Ray Bradbury Theater. Well, when I was in high school and I was, I had finally decided I'm going to go to UCLA. I'm going to study there. My mom kept saying, you know what? When, at some point, you should connect with this producer. He works at ABC for ABC News. Maybe he can help you. I go, well, who's that? It's a guy named Mark Massari. I go, who's that? I don't know, but he has the same last name. Maybe we're related in some way. I go, just because we have the same last name doesn't mean we're related, right? So I started doing a few concerts and my mom reminded me, hey, you, you need to call him up. So I said, oh, I don't know. I just don't know. Now, in the meantime, I was staying at the dorms. Ray Bradbury used to visit the dorms like twice a year, especially if we were, if we, you know, hauled out a projector and we were going to watch some really awesome movie. I, I remember particularly Planet of the Apes. We had Planet of the Apes and we were going to see like whatever the sequel to that was, whatever the two of them it had a double feature, right? Ray Bradbury would show up. I don't know why. I have not a clue why. And then one time he showed up, we were going to play the, Illust- uh, the Illustrated Man. Yeah, The Illustrated Man. Uh, and Fahrenheit 451, we had a double feature. He definitely showed up for that one. And he would give us like a motivational talk, like about, you know, you know how serious are you about what you do? You know, and he would talk about his experiences. About You know, he says, you have an incredible experience here at school where you have these libraries there's like 30 libraries on campus you could go swimming in each one of them and and pick up so much knowledge you you just don't see it but you've got to do it even if you like once a week spend a half hour in each library and just randomly pick out a book and start reading it you've got to do that it's going to change your life in magical ways they found out later the reason why he came there is maybe it's because he he felt he owed a debt to UCLA because he actually, uh, I think Fahrenheit 451 was written in one of the typing rooms at UCLA. He used to go with a bag of change and say, here, uh, I'm going to be here all day because they would rent like at 10 cents an hour or something like that. Right. Yeah. So he would take his pennies and dimes and nickels and spend all day typing then go home. His wife would proofread it and he'd go back and make the changes. 
So then, uh, you know, I started doing these concerts and what have you. My mom says, remember that guy? You should call him up. And I go, okay, where is he? At, at ABC News. So I called his, and I got him on the phone. I go, hi, Mark. My name is John Masari. You, we, I'm sure we're not related, but I thought I'd just give you a call. I'm a composer, and I'd like to hear you to hear my music. And he said, oh, that's interesting. And so I sent him a tape, and he liked it. And we had lunch. And this is like I was in my, uh, I had finished school, right? So I was in my first year being out in the in the real world and so he said you know i'm developing a series of ghost stories for cable television and i said wow what's cable television (laughs) (laughs) he says oh it's there's this thing where you subscribe right and tv shows come to your into your living room with no commercials because you're paying a subscription fee and i go wow that's great so so no more antennas yeah it comes through a cable really like you get a box he was telling me the whole thing this is kind of like before so two years later there was hbo right and he says okay i'm working on this tv series and it's kind of like ghost stories kind of like maybe maybe you can think of it like kind of like twilight zone he didn't tell me anything about it he was very you know was really hiding his cards on it because he didn't want to tell me the whole thing he says you know perhaps you'd come up with a theme and so I came up with a few things, and this did not wind up in the Ray Bradbury theory. I came up with a few things. Think of something mysterious. And so he came up with a few things, and he liked them. And he says, "Okay, I think we're going to use you. I think you're going to you're going to work well on this. But I, I, you need to meet the writer. He's very particular about music. The writer of the show, uh, of the series. I go, okay. And what's his name? Well, you'll meet him when you come here, right? He didn't say anything." You know, I got to ask him if he did that on purpose just to surprise me. So I walk in the room and I'm sitting across the table from Ray Bradbury. And I'm like, I feel like a two-year-old. I didn't know what to say. He said, a writer. I didn't know what writer he was. He didn't give me a name or anything. And all he could say is, Mr. Bradbury used to come to our school all the time and, and speak. And it was so great. And this is fantastic. He goes, well, did you learn anything? And I go, well, I'm I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> working with you. He goes, okay, enough of that. We need to get to work. And he sits there and describes, he had written down like the scenario of how he wanted the music to go and what sounds he wanted to hear. And so I said, let me give this a shot. I'll, I'll come back in a couple of days with something. Oh, I couldn't sleep that night. I, I worked through the night. I came, I sketch, and I have the sketch, the very first sketch that, and I recorded it the next day at a little studio with just a couple of musicians and synthesizers and stuff. And I ran it, made a cassette, right? And I ran it to the, the office and I left it there and they listened to it and they said, oh, I liked it. Okay, we're going to have uh, Ray listen to it. And so one day went by. I was biting my nails. Two days went by. On the third day, I couldn't take it anymore. So I called back and I said, you know, I just wanted to know if it works, does anything need to be changed? And they said, oh, sorry, we got so bogged down. So, yeah, he really liked it. And they go, oh, it was like, oh, it's like <laughs> I got shot by, you know, uh, he said he really liked it, especially the, the main little motif. It was it, it reminded him of something, a calling to a distant world or something like that, something very poetic, right? And so I was just on cloud nine. So then I said, okay, I'll I'll do it with a, because I, I understood that I was going to do a better 
demonstration of the melody and with all the instruments and stuff like that. And then we record it with an orchestra. Well, this is where I shot myself in the foot. To them, it sound, my, my next demo sounded so good that they said, this will be fine. We'll use this. You know, there's no reason to spend any more money than we have to. It's <laughs> like, oh, God. I was like, so I got something nice for At the time, it was really nice for me. And I got to pay the musicians and everything, and, and that worked out. It was done primarily out of Canada. So everything went back to Canada. So that was, that was it. And so every year when I tried to like, because they had to be rewritten because they changed the opening every year, I tried to convince them, can, we, can you do it with a real group now? No, 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 no. no. We, we can't change the sound now. So you have to do it the way you've done the previous one. So... Uh, about like 14 years ago I did a recording session in the Czech Republic and I put this music in front of them so I finally recorded it with a live orchestra and got to send it to Ray said ray i I, caught, I actually had his home number and i could you know if i had something pertinent to tell him i was able to call him and actually have a phone conversation with him and i said ray hi this is john was sorry remember i did you ready everything oh yes how you doing son i'm doing fine you know i i, I did a recording session and i did the the theme with an orchestra i'd like to send it to you oh yeah could you please that'd be nice i'd like to hear that so i mailed it to him right and he uh, called me like three days later and he goes Okay, I, I, I like this and, and I, I'd be willing to pay for it. Can you get me three more copies? And I said, Ray, I can get you thirty more copies. I can <laughs> spit these things out of my computer like 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 a toaster oven. And he goes, Oh my goodness, and it won't cost me anything. No, it won't cost you a dime. I'll send thirty to it. Because I want to give them to my friends. And I said, You got it. So so that's kind of like the story of the Ray Bradbury thing, you know. So I basically did the theme, and I did – there was a lot of uh, little introductions to each episode. I did those. I did music to those. And I did uh, one episode entirely. It was called Banshee. <laughs> favorite short stories but i didn't get to write all of the episodes because it was done in canada and there was a there was a stipulation that if it was financed by the canadian government it had to use you can only use so many people from the united states so i was allowed to do that one episode and i was allowed to do all the little small stuff that you know the he did these introductions like um Hitchcock presents type things, you know, where he presented the, the story, uh, you know. So that's the, the story of the Library Theater. It's kind of like a, it's one of those odd coincidences that occurred in my career.
Okay, I know we've only scratched the surface of John's career, but this is about the midway point and a good place to stop for now. I'd like to thank John Massari for lending his time, experience, and knowledge to the show. What you just listened to is only part one of an extensive interview. If you'd like to check out part two, with all new updates and bonus material to this original interview, as well as extensive interviews with 15 other amazing film music composers, you can find them in my new book, Score to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. The new book, as well as its predecessor, Scored to Death, are available on Amazon from other book retailers or from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. For all things Scored to Death, you can follow me on social media at Scored to Death. And please check out my nostalgic movie podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. And you can follow John Massari on most social media platforms, including SoundCloud, at John Massari. And you can purchase the orchestral Ray Bradbury Theater theme featured in this episode, as well as other tracks, on cdbaby.com. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast. Please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. Mm-hmm.